Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist Podcast. I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing in the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they are all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and the communities that they serve. But my next-door neighbor might not recognize their name. So they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people, sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing, things that they're passionate about. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope some positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have on the show uh, Dr. Ross Kamage. And uh, Dr. Kamage has been the Director of Thoracic Oncology a clinical and clinical research programs at the University of Colorado since 2007. He earned his medical degree from University of Oxford and his PhD from University of Cambridge after receiving his undergraduate degree at Oxford University. Beyond the medicine, Dr. Kamage and all members of his team also believe they should look after every patient and their friends and family as they would want their own friends and family to be looked after. And I love that. So I had to share that. Okay. Uh, welcome to the program. Hey, Dave. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to start by having you just tell us about yourself. And I like to say, maybe tell us a little bit about the younger Ross Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the younger Ross Cambridge started off in Britain. So um, I did all of, so I grew up in Britain and I did all of my medical training there. And I was coming to the end of my, my specialist training in medical oncology. And I was probably in my middle 30s at that point in time. And two two things happened. So um, first of all, I realized, you know, when you, you look at people above you and you're looking for, and I couldn't see a peer that I thought, I want to be like that guy or that gal. <laughs> it was, there was, and there was, you know, so that was a kind of slightly depressing of like, am I climbing up the right ladder? <laughs> and then the, the second one was I got reached out to by one of my alma mater so the university of cambridge and you're in boston so this is the original and best cambridge as opposed to the johnny come lately okay, new okay i got it <laughs> um and th this guy who was the head of the cancer center in cambridge literally sort of phoned me up out of the blue and said we've we've had money sitting in the bank account for years that was supposed to send someone from you know, the UK was well, supposedly from the University of Cambridge to the NCI in the USA, and we haven't spent the money. And we heard about you. And we wondered if, if you would be interested in doing it. And I was going, A, I haven't been at the University of Cambridge for, you know, 10 years. And B, I don't want to go to the NCI. And he, and they went, okay, it was a short conversation. And then, and then about a week later, he phoned me back and said, well, we've, we've talked about it. Would, would you like the money to go anywhere else? And so it was kind of like, okay, so I, I I got my own salary for two years, and then I started phoning up places in America, and then everybody wants you because you're just, you're free. You're a free person for two years. <laughs> and I ended up in Colorado, and that was in late 2005. So I was a visiting professor for two years, and and then I, I went on in full faculty in 2007. All right, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing, and thanks for that little jab at Cambridge. That's, I always appreciate that. You and I are going to be talking about that all day, because uh, I know you spent some time in Boston, too, so um, but I, I want to curious if, you know, did you, 
did you always want to be a doctor? Like when you were younger, did you, is that the path that, or did something inspire you or do you have other family members or how did that yeah, happen? Well, so, it, I mean, I would say probably from the age of about 12 or 13, I wanted to be a doctor. Bef before that, the other things that I flirted with, it was for some reason I wanted to be a priest, which is weird because I'm not particularly <laughs> religious, but I guess there's an element of speaking to people and understanding and sort of counseling. And I think I went through a brief phase of wanting to be a veterinarian because I liked animals. But no, from pretty much from the age of 12 or 13, I, I wanted to be a doctor. I've always fascinated by that. It's like, I mean, I, when I was 12, I was like, you know, I had no clue what I was doing or what I wanted to do. So, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and it's not, it's, I mean, no, it's, I mean, you're totally right. So there are some people who at age 12 or 13 say, I want to be a pediatric vascular surgeon. And that's weird. That's you know? crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I just wanted to be a doctor and I didn't really know what a doctor was. I, I knew my own primary care physician, but that, you know, that was vaguely what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I have a, I have a friend who's a lawyer and he wanted to be a lawyer since, you know, he was a little kid too. And I'm like, mm, I don't, not so much for me, <laughs> but um, so when you did come to the U.S., um, and you, you, so you landed in Colorado, right? When you, yeah, yeah. So that was, had you ever been? Uh, well, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd come for an interview. So I, I think um, after I sort of phoned some places up and said, hi, do you want a free pair of hands for two years? I, <laughs> I came and interviewed in a couple of places on the, the East Coast, which I, I, won't, I won't name, um, uh, a place in Texas, which I won't name, and... Um, and then Colorado. And be before coming for that interview, then the middle of the country, like like most tourists, was what you flew over to go to the fun stuff on the east or the west coast. Yeah, that's interesting. And Colorado is a beautiful place, but um, but I'm from Minnesota, so uh, it's one of those places as well. It's flyover country. Yeah. Um, so, and I know you love Colorado, um, and you, I think you mentioned that it's. When you, now when you go back to the East Coast, everything's so claustrophobic for you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th I think I grew to love it. I mean, I think I, I ch out of the job offers I got, I chose to go to Colorado for a number of a number of reasons, and I got to that point in my career where I wanted I wanted to do stuff that I wanted to do, and I wanted to see if I could be successful, as opposed to just borrowed success by working in an old famous place i mean i'd, I'd worked in uh in the uk at you know lots of very well known and very old and distinguished places and and that's kind of reflected glory i must be good because i'm working in the royal something or other exactly but, yeah. but at some point you have to say well i've got to do it myself and colorado offered me that opportunity with a with a sort of refreshing naivete in the sense that as I went to the interviews um, around, I would sort of go, "Well, what about this? And what about that?" And they, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say, "You know, we don't know how to do it," but their their impression was, you know, these were new ideas. But their impression was, we we would like to figure out how to do it, and these sound like good ideas, and let's go for it. Whereas when I did that in some of the more established places on the East Coast, I was kind of shut down with the "we don't do it like that here" approach, mm -hmm. yeah. and that. At least at that point in my career, that was the the wrong thing to say to me because I was trying to spread my wings. Yeah, I I can totally appreciate that. I, I you know, the the, the Boston's nicknamed the hub, right? Because it's like the, this attitude of like everything revolves around Boston. And I myself find myself being very Boston centric, but love talking to people like you and others, you know, from around the country because I know uh, so many good things have 
uh, happening in research all over the all over the world, really. But in the United States, the, your the CU uh, the thoracic oncology program has been behind really so many developments, maybe all of the major developments in thoracic cancers, particularly lung cancer, in the last decade. I'd love to hear you uh, tell us about that, especially when you put it in reference to what you just described about the old established place, and now here you are in Colorado, and you guys yeah. are, you guys are doing great work. Well, so, so let, let's be clear. I mean, I think, you know, the, the whole of the Harvard system is is one of, you know, the most outstanding places for, for lung cancer. But there was a, you know, as, as I kind of began to realize that Colorado wasn't Harvard, um, you know, there are still things that you can do. You can still change the world from, you know, your back seat as long as, long as you know what you're doing and you can be sort of strategic about what you go forward with. And probably relatively early on, I was inspired by um, a guy who worked on a different kind of a cancer. So that back in Britain, um, there was a guy called Bill Heald, and he was a surgeon, and he worked on colorectal cancer. And many years ago, when if you had a rectal cancer, um, the way people would take it out is they would open up your tummy, and they would reach down into your pelvis and essentially pull it out, like pulling out a, you know, a turnip. And they would leave stuff behind. And so the local recurrence rate was very high. And Dr. Heald, who literally worked in a small hospital in the middle of nowhere, sort of went back to basics on his kitchen table and felt that there was what he called um, a, a mystic plane between, you know, if you went back to embryology, you could see that if you dissected down in a very specific way, the tissues would naturally fall apart. And, you know, you would be able to not leave stuff behind. And he called that a total mesorectal excision. And he published his data and his his local recurrence rate wasn't 20 or 30 percent. It was like 2 percent. But because he wasn't in a famous institution, everyone said, oh, this guy's a charlatan. And he stuck to his guns and mm. he he published series after series of his stuff. And then he started to teach people how to do this operation. And he showed that if you teach people, their recurrence rate went down. And he never left that small district hospital. And, you know, I don't know him as a person. He may be a complete jerk. But, you know, I was struck by the fact that if, you, if you're right and you choose what you do, you can change the world from wherever you are. And so Bill Heald would be an inspiration to me to sort of say, I'm in Colorado, but I can still change the world just as much as somebody in Harvard can, you know, maybe in slightly different ways. Yeah. And you guys really have, you have had an impact. Um, what are, what, I, and I know, I think I read that you also have uh, a high rate of clinical trial participation. That's, that's higher than, than maybe so the when average. I, when so I, tell when me I, about when that. When I came, um, when I came, there was, it was, it was a well-known program for a couple of reasons. So uh, there was a guy called Paul Bunn, who was very big in kind of international professional bodies. So he was, he'd been president of ASCO, and he was president of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. And then later, he was the CEO of the, the same organization. And, and yet he was, he was, in some sense, the absent landlord, he was busy changing the world from the these international organizations, which I think he did a lot of good there. But the actual clinical program in Colorado was relatively modest. And when I arrived, there was really the, the, the workhorse was somebody called Karen Kelly, who actually is now the CEO of the IASLC. But Karen was, was wonderful when I first arrived. But, you know, they didn't know how many patients they were seeing. There was a very small participation in clinical trials. And I think Karen had been looking to spread her wings. And about six months after I arrived, she left. 
And it was like, oh, hold on, you're supposed to be my mentor. And so, <laughs> and so I was uh, literally thrown in at the deep end about six months after I arrived. And, you know, I did, there was no way back. You know, I had, I had nowhere in Britain to go to. Um, I couldn't go anywhere else in America because of the visa I was on. So the only way out was through. And so I had to sort of strip it down to basics and figure out what, you know, what, what I could do to make this a success. And, you know, in retrospect, it was great because there was no one in the way, but it was, I, I remember sitting in my office, you know, about six or eight months in, you know, working, you know, every day of the weekend, just trying to keep up to speed with everything because it was all dumped on me. And I remember breaking down in tears and just sort of saying this, well, you know, you don't really say anything. You're just sort of overwhelmed and 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 there's nothing you could do. You just had to do the best you could. But what I decided was, you know, we're geographically isolated. So we're right in the middle of the country. We're about 800 miles from the next big town with a cancer center. And I started to realize that there was no point taking on big phase three studies, you know, 300 people in this arm, 300 people in that arm, because no one's going to travel to be randomized to standard of care. And I thought that what we should try and do is play to what strengths I had, which was in early drug development. And so I started to work closely with our phase one team to try and get drugs very early in development and then see if there was a sniff of activity in lung cancer. And then if there was, be able to talk to the drug company and sort of say, you know, we, you should develop this more in lung cancer and I'd love to help you lead that and design that. And we, and that, that was successful. And we eventually got to the point a few years ago where we're consistently enrolling about 40% of our lung cancer patients on clinical trials, which is double the next best NCI lung cancer program and about 10 times the national average. And so that allows us to take our, our elevator pitch, which is that we have led or contributed to every major development in lung cancer in the last 15 years. And that's because we try and get in at the ground floor. I love that. That's so, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and the, you know, the, the geographical uh, point that you make is, is legit. So um, I, I don't think I asked you earlier though, like what, like, how did you end up in lung cancer? Uh, well, so when I was in Edinburgh in Scotland, you know, you, you know, as a trainee, you rotate around the various different disease types and the lung cancer team was, I don't know. I really liked the patients and I really liked the physicians that I was working with. And they were, they were very humble patients. They weren't kind of demanding. And, you know, that, that made me want to step forward towards them. And also I just got the feeling that lung cancer at that point in time, there was chemotherapy for lung cancer and that was about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, that they, it was kind of poised for a breakthrough. As, as part of my training, we didn't touch on this, but I was the test pilot for a program that in addition to training in medical oncology, I also trained in clinical pharmacology and that involved an attachment actually to AstraZeneca for 18 months during my training. Mm. And Iressa had just got, in fact, got licensed in the USA whilst I was on attachment. I remember because they had they had free cookies in the canteen with the Iressa <laughs> logo on them. I remember helping myself to several of them. Um, <laughs> And I actually worked on the backup, the first backup to Aressa, which never had to see the light of day because Aressa was so successful. But that definitely got me interested in the sense that lung cancer was, you know, going to become, you know, a hot topic. And it was very common and it was very bad. And so it desperately needed a breakthrough. And so I felt that that I could contribute something there. That's amazing. And you're not the first person that I've had on my show that 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 talks like about like that, because um, 
I was diagnosed in 2000. I rem- and I that that changed my career path going to healthcare because I was in business development, you know, for the Bank of Ireland at the time, and that didn't seem too exciting anymore after my cancer yeah. experience. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I do I do remember you know going to a conference, you know. Uh, ask over one of the big conferences and Arrested was like all over the place. It was such a big deal. So I, I, I age myself, but I do remember that. Well, I, for, for me, one of the transformative moments is they had an AACR meeting, which is kind of mostly basic science. And that was, it happened to be in Denver and I can't remember what year it was. It was probably like 2008 or nine. And at that point in time, you know, we we were starting to get, you know, EGFI mutations out there, out rearrangements out there. And I found myself at lunch just sitting at a table with, you know, some random docs and we were just chatting and there was a melanoma doctor from somewhere and a breast cancer doctor from somewhere. And norm- normally lung cancer doctors are the other Cinderella's here. You know, we don't get invited to the ball. And, you know, our every every lung cancer talk began with lung cancer, you know, kills more people than anyone else. And there was a perverse pride in that. And yet, you know, it's like, why haven't you done anything? And yet there I was at this lunch a few years later. And suddenly the breast cancer doctor and the melanoma doctor were saying, well, we wish we had the kind of breakthroughs you were having in lung cancer. It was like, kill me now. This is the this is the dream conversation I've been waiting for. Um, and so the idea that lung cancer went from, you know, the 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 huge deadly kid at the back of the classroom to suddenly we you know we got invited at the front because you know we made breakthroughs it's 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 remarkable the 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 journey that that has happened in in lung cancer research and i've i've talked to many doctors who was like why i said why did you choose lung cancer like i don't know no one else was doing it so i figured i'd do it and like you know it looked like like you said i think there was you there were people like you that said it's it's poised for breakthrough it needs a breakthrough so I'm so I'm so grateful for people like you that did get in at the time that you did um, to help make the changes happen. Um, you, you mentioned the, the 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 surgeon earlier, you know, have been inspiring you. But you also mentioned to me when we first spoke that you know you didn't have mentors, um, and now maybe you over mentor, which I which I which I think yeah, totally I makes th- sense. And and with COVID now, it's people all over the all over the country, right? Yeah, I mean. It, it, I mean, I think when you go to meetings and they sort of talk about how your career, they, they often say, well, you've got to get yourself a good mentor. And what happens if you don't have a good mentor? I did, you know, as I said, you know, Karen was wonderful, but she left. And then Paul was operating at a stratospheric level. And so it just wasn't there. So I I really didn't have any. And so sometimes what I say to people, is, and like you say, I end up mentoring people in my own program. And then because I'm also the director of an academic consortium now, I mentor people across the country. And one of the things I say to them is, you know, your best mentor is yourself. And I think you you sitting back and waiting for someone to mentor you if that person isn't there is just a waste of time you know you have to get up off your own backside and and do it yourself and it's about looking at whatever program you're in and what its strengths and weaknesses are and there's no point wishing for something that's not there but you can emphasize the strengths in your own program and whatever group of people you work with but also if you have you know good good clinical and research skills as you said, you know, these developments have, have happened over a relatively short space of time. And so you can be the first person to see something that no one else has seen. And that could be 
in anywhere. I mean, you don't have to be in a fancy center for that. I mean, some of the discoveries that we made were literally, you're just sitting in the clinic and you're going, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if, you know, two and two make four. And then you look at a few more people and the pattern emerges. It's about having a brain that tries to create patterns. And then you sort of see whether it, you know, it's just, you know, two tosses of a coin that landed by chance or whether there's a, there's a real pattern there. And we've done that multiple times. It's very satisfying. Yeah. I, I love the way be, not being a scientist, I love the way that scientists think because I, you know, I have a, a good friend who's a, he's a, his, John Wettstein and he's at Fox Chase now and he's, you know, he's a geno, uh, uh, epigenetics researcher. And I, when I, he talks about it, he just, his light has just, his eyes light up and it's so fascinating to me, but, but he, you know, but he talks about the, the, the process of like, oh, you went down that path and darn it, I thought that was going to work. And then, but then just getting right back and saying, and trying it, you know, different, something different. So. On that note, um, I'd love to hear uh, you tell us uh, what research you're most excited about right now. Well, so I think um, again to kind of go back to you know how do you how do you develop a program when you know you're 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 not a name brand, and part of the thing is to learn to look to the future. There's the kind of Wayne Gretzky quote about you know skating to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And so I think there's a bit of me that's, that's learned to anticipate where the future is going. And so at the moment, the area that I think um, we will transform the way we think is about antibody drug conjugates. So this is where you get a nasty chemotherapy, so toxic that you couldn't normally give it to a person, but you attach it to an antibody and the antibody homes to a marker on the surface of some cells, which you know presumably is on the surface of your cancer. And then you get extra delivery to the cancer and less delivery to the normal tissue. So you get more efficacy and less toxicity. And that's fine. People have been trying to develop these for years. But what we're starting to see now is not only are these things working, but you open up this whole area of saying, well, what happens when they work and then they stop working? Because we're going to have to start to look for mechanisms of resistance that we never did before. Suddenly people will alter the binding site on the surface of the cell so the antibody doesn't bind well the antibody still binds but now we're going to alter the biology that we haven't really looked at before in oncology about membrane trafficking how do you pull things into the cell and send them to the right place because if you if it binds to the surface of the cell and doesn't get internalized then you don't deliver the toxin and so i think we are going to start to discover heterogeneities of mechanism resistance using science that we are not used to using. Um, and on the basis of that, we'll figure out, well, where do we go to next? So let's say you just alter the binding site on the surface of the cell. Well, maybe you could come in with an antibody that binds to the same thing, but just on a different site. Or if you shed the extracellular domain completely, maybe you can keep the same toxin, but go to some other marker on the surface of the cell. If you alter the, the internalization dynamics, again, if that's specific to one membrane receptor, maybe you could look at other ones too. And then we'll start to play around with how we alter membrane trafficking. So that that to me is exciting because my PhD many, many years ago was actually in membrane trafficking. So it's kind of like, <laughs> oh my goodness, that dusty old box with that knowledge in it, now I can use it. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's that's so that's so cool. Um I, it just prompted me to think, you know, you, you, I can see you light up when you talk about research. And but I also heard you talk about, you know, the how you back when you were in training, you were drawn into your patients. And I, I'd love to hear the like when you balance between the research and the patient, like the joy that you must get from 
working with your patients, particularly when you can provide good news, you know, emotionally? Yeah, well, well, so, I mean, good news is easy. Um, I, but you can still, you can still deliver bad news well. And yeah. so you can make the best of a bad situation. And, um, but yes, I think, so I, along my slightly checkered career path, in addition to training in medical oncology and clinical pharmacology, somewhere along the way, I flirted with being a basic scientist and did a, a very hard science molecular biology PhD. And at the end of that, I realized two things. So one is I'd learned how to think scientifically and do all of that, but also it didn't excite me just looking at the cells in isolation. So I did a cell biology PhD. And the other one is I realized that you know, I was reasonably smart, but I wasn't smart enough to be kind of Nobel laureate in that department. And when I went back to clinical medicine, what I was struck by, so I did the kind of PhD in an intercalated way. You did preclinical medicine and then a PhD and then I did clinical medicine. Is when I went back to clinical medicine, what I realized was I was thinking much more scientifically than my peers who had just gone straight through medical school. But I was also excited about seeing patients after having spent four years just looking at cells growing in a petri dish and that it's the marriage between the two that somehow works so i meet mrs jones in front of me and i'm excited to know mrs jones as a person so i don't treat a tumor i treat a person who happens to have cancer but then if i can right figure something out that makes her life better or i can be an advocate for her when i'm talking to drug companies who who describe their drug as well tolerated when it's clearly not well tolerated, then I can somehow make the world better. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, one of the I, I've been thinking about this since when we first talked, but I'd love to have you tell us about the book you're writing. <laughs> yeah. So this was my this was my COVID project, and um, what what had happened was that one of my ex fellows, who's now who's now faculty somewhere else, had reached out to me saying, "I'm you know I'm going to write an academic book chapter, whatever, on the the history of EGFR mutations." And he sent me the first draft, which I think I told him at the time uh, needed a lot of work. But that was a very polite way of saying it was terrible, <laughs> and, and it was wildly inaccurate for someone who'd actually lived through it. And whilst I've helped him and that is now submitted and it looks really good from an academic perspective, I realized just like you and I are talking that it was a fascinating time in history where you went from one size fits all with lung cancer, getting pretty bad results to the beginning of personalized medicine, which really started nearly 20 years ago in about 2004. And so I decided during COVID that I would actually write that book for the general public. I would do an emperor of all maladies, but for the beginning of personalized medicine in lung cancer. And so I finished the first draft maybe a year ago. And as you may or may not know, a book is supposed to take four drafts. <laughs> and then, um, and so the first one, you finish it and there's great big holes in it and you go, well, one of the things I realized after the end of the first draft is I didn't have enough on patient advocates. So then I went back and interviewed all, all of the patients who started all these patient support organizations and they were fantastic to talk to. And so the second draft is about 80% of the way through. I've been on a bit of a lull since the summer, but I actually have a week's vacation coming up and that's when I'm going to hopefully get it over the finishing line. <laughs> Once I get to the second draft, I get to send it out to reviewers and take it from there. But yeah, it, I think the great thing was because I knew all of these people, I could just phone them all up and say, can I chat to you? And especially because it was at the beginning of COVID, they weren't doing anything else. So I got they're to speak right, to they're the, sitting there. Yeah. I got to speak to the head of the FDA. It was like, can you talk this afternoon? <laughs> sure. You know. <laughs> and, okay. The, it's uh, go ahead. And so that was that was I really in, enjoyed that. Um, and I'm hoping 
that it will, you know, not only shine a light on some of the, you know, brilliant but not famous people, as you said, but also the processes that you have to go through to make progress. You know, in Star Trek, it's like, you know, by the end of the episode, we will have the answer and they'll have synthesized <laughs> some new machine that does it. In in reality, you know, you try things and they don't work. And then there's some jerk who wants to do something different. And, you know, you have to fight all these battles. But eventually the truth always comes out. <laughs> okay, it's the, em the emperor of all maladies um, for lung cancer. So yeah. I, I, I'm waiting. I'll be waiting for the, it, you know, probably 600 pages. And I'll be waiting for the, the Ken Burns documentary, the 10 part series. On, that would be on good. That. I haven't told you. I haven't told you as tightly yet, but that's deliberate because that's bad <laughs> luck to reveal that. <laughs> okay. Um, so now I'd love to talk to you about something that's really dear to my heart. And you can see, I can see your white ribbon and you see mine. Um, the white ribbon project. And um, I, I love the video that Heidi and Pierre um, uh put together Chris Draft, I don't know who put it together, but with you and a bunch of the team uh, in Denver uh, making ribbons. And first of all, thank you so much because I'm walk I was watching it here from uh, from Boston and I was not able to come uh, to that event, but I really wanted to. But I'd love to hear you tell us about what it felt like and when you first heard of it and you got involved with it, like what was that as a clinician and a researcher? Tell us how what you what you felt. I'm trying to remember who re it was either Chris Draft or it was or it was Heidi herself who reached out to me. And Heidi li Heidi lives in Colorado, although yeah. she's um, I think she's looked after by a different healthcare system than than our own. So the idea that you would gather together and do something practical together is is very good for men because we're we're terrible social conversationalists and having something to do with our hands a bit like watching sport together so it was an easy thing to go and i also brought my wife and kids um i was trying to make these ribbons with chris draft who i'm, I'm sure has really good hands because he was in the nfl but at the same time i did have to count my fingers before and afterwards but we managed <laughs> to get it done but i think what i like about it and you know i got to know heidi a little bit the idea of making a wooden ribbon that is, you know, I don't know what it is, like 18 inches long. I mean, it's a, it, it's sort of slightly impractically sized. It's not a key ring. But Heidi's logic is it's it's there so that it's in your face, so that somebody goes, what is that? You know, what is that hanging on your wall? Or if you're going through the airport, what is that thing sticking out of your bag that doesn't fit in to start the conversation? And that whole idea about stepping out from the shadows and being counted i think is tremendously important and and the great thing is it's caught on and it's just a sort of must-have zoom accessory that you have sitting behind your your head when you're on the call so i i i love that and i think even from when i first came here one of the things that i don't think i knew i was doing at the time but in retrospect what i was trying to do was change the face of lung cancer so People didn't look like a little shriveled version of Robert Mitchum. You know, you would have people who looked like they were actually enjoying life or thriving despite a lung cancer diagnosis. Again, to emphasize the idea that these are people who happen to have cancer as opposed to these are cancer people who happen to be people. I love that. And I, I love the Robert Mitchum reference, but uh, and it, it's a cigarette like, hanging out of his mouth, you know? Of course. You have to add that, of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, it's, I think it's like two feet long actually, but it's, it's, um, it's big enough to capture people's attention as it's sticking out of your bag. Cause I, I brought them to ASCO. I bring it, I brought, I'm, I'm not as, as active as Chris draft. Cause I don't have 
as much time to, to, to be traveling around the world, but uh, I, I have had, had to start conversations, but it's, it's small enough that you can actually bring it on an airplane or a train or whatever. So it's, yeah. it's, and the, for me, the, the bottom line is that the most important thing that attracted me to it is that it was, it was made by hand from someone who loved someone. And I think the fact that every ribbon that's made been made sense is, is made from a, from a, you trace it. I, I saw you in the video tracing ribbons. So yeah. And they're all a little different. They're all a little, it's not, they're not perfect because some people are better craftsmen than others. Like, uh, you know, like, like David Carbone, you know, he's like a, he's a, he's a guy who has a wood shop. He's you know? probably he, really, he's probably really good. He's a woodworker. Yeah. yeah. I'll bet he's really good. And and I have a friend who's a carpenter and he, the ones he made, I'm like, he put me to shame. The ones that I made in my garage, <laughs> I didn't use the saw, but uh, the, the person that they're just not that they're just not perfect. So um, I really appreciate uh, you being involved with the, with the project. And, and I, as a, as a, as a patient advocate and survivor, when I gave a ribbon, and I've given out a lot of ribbons around Boston, when I gave a ribbon to Lisa, uh, Dr. Sequist, Lisa Sequist, and I said, this was made at my house in, you know, uh, in my driveway, and Dr. Justin Gaynor was there tracing ribbons, making ribbons. I said, I've made with love, and I'm delivering it with love. And she said, and received with love. And it was yeah. like, every time I give a ribbon to so I just gave one to the, the, the president of uh, Takeda Oncology. And it's emotional. There's 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 something to it that yeah. I think you can't you can't describe. And on the back of it, which you know, most people don't know, is that there's a whole bunch of signatures on the back from the people who were there on the day. On the day making them, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. In fact, I, yeah, we made ribbons at Takeda last week, so I brought one home with me because I had all the people on the lung team sign it. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a, it's just a really cool project. So. Um, I can't let you go. I I gave a talk, Dave, um, oh, I think in July at an ALK patient summit. There were 800 ALK positive patients, either in person or virtual. And I drew a distinction between research that costs millions of dollars. So a a phase three clinical trial can cost 70 to 100 million Mm dollars. And that's important. But I also then drew the distinction with the, you know, the white ribbon project where, you know, the, the, the ribbons cost, you know, pennies to make. And it's kind of more like MacGyver kind of, you know, putting the solution together, but it's just as important in a different way. It totally is. And I appreciate you saying that. And, and to comment earlier about, it's not like a bracelet or a keychain or something. And, and that's the whole point, right? Because, it, yeah. you know, a ribbon or a small ribbon or bracelet or whatever it would get lost on my, my messy desk, but you can't miss the, you know, the white ribbon and, and it's a symbol. It's, it's become a symbol and it, it, to me it's just very cool so um now i know you're i told you i was going to try to get back to to uh to uh the uk at some okay. point yeah and you told me that your mom still your mom still lives in edinburgh and so uh, i'm sorry edinburgh i i, I knew i would say no, it it's wrong, okay but... no american can pronounce it but it's edinburgh <laughs> <laughs> oh that's right i tried to practice i knew that because i heard you yeah. say it and i I tried so to practice I to, it. My wife, who's from Florida, I, I have to say, you have to mention it's spelled E-D-I-N and then B-R-R-R-R-R. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm not even going to try it again. But I wanted to ask you, if you get, how often do you get back there? Or do, you get, do you get a chance to get back very often? So we went, I went back in January 20, actually this year, January 2022, because we actually had to rescue my mom. So she was kind of, my mom's 91. So she was kind of failing and kind of isolated. And so my brother, who lives in Germany, we kind of went there 
we kind of packed her up and then we I, I brought her back with me here to the USA just to kind of and, and we we floated the idea that she would stay with us permanently but we definitely nursed her back to health and she was up and out and walking and having a good time and putting on weight and then she decided she felt well enough that she wanted to go back to the things she was familiar with and not not live in America which didn't have <laughs> the nice food that she liked so then she went back so she's been back in Edinburgh since about June um but um yeah it was it was fun going it was really fun going back because I was there with my brother and we could just sort of re regress and um it was you know, it's a, Edinburgh is a really nice town. It's super old. I mean, the, there's a part of it which is called the New Town, which was built in 1700. Um, the old town was built in about 1200 something. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, it, I'm going to, my wife and I are planning, we're hoping to get back uh, at some point, And we're not just going to go to London because I, I took your advice and you told me that, you know, going to London, think that you've seen England is like going to New York and think you've seen America. So, yeah. Uh, so. Um, I, I have, um, one last thing I want to ask you, I ask all my guests is outside of work, can you tell us something that you're passionate about or that people may not know about you? Well, apart from writing the book, um, the, <laughs> I, I am a, um, a halfway decent watercolor artist. And so I do that usually when I travel, when I, cause there's not much else to do when you're on your own, but you can take a small sketch pad out and, and do that. Um, and uh, this may or may not surprise you. Um, so once upon a time, I was a stand-up comedian when I was in, and I don't do that anymore. But I do believe that humor is important in communication, and you can you can somehow soften some blows or or lessen the barriers between physician and patient if you can all be laughing together. Well, we're all humans, so you know it's it's part of the process. Did you did you actually perform and? I did. Clubs? Did you? I did. I got paid. Oh my goodness! I love that. That's a, that's yeah. awesome. But I haven't done it for a few years. I found I found other avenues to to present <laughs> and make the audience laugh. That's very cool. Thank you so much for sharing. And um, I really want to thank you for um, all the work that you do, the research, taking care of patients, making a difference, changing the world from Colorado. Uh, and thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Dave. Thanks for asking me.